and all that. However, um, as, as the race gets closer, you start kind of gathering together by, by the starting area and they get them all organized into heats. And, and then, um, all of a sudden they go out onto the track and, uh, and they're kind of running and kind of practicing their starts. And then there's three calls, right? On your mark. That means, hey, get on your mark. You're starting from this mark. You get on that mark and, and you're kind of still kind of loosening up. You know, you're kind of right here and you're preparing for this race, right? You're dialing in and then get set. That means that you're in your blocks and sprinters, all of a sudden they go, Phew! their hind ends are in the air and their muscles are tensed. They are ready to go. They are a cocked gun. They are a coiled or a, a compressed spring, right? And then comes the firing of the pistol, go. And that's when it's just release. It's just go. They just fire out and they do what they came to do, what they've been training for, what they've been anticipating now, if you've ever been in a race, if you've ever been in a football game and you're, you're breaking the huddle, you know the play, you know the count, and you're in your stance, right? If you've ever uh, been at a basketball game to where I, I think one of the most fun parts of the basketball game is, is, getting, the origin, is, is getting the tip off. I, I feel bad for everybody who wasn't in the tip off, right, CJ? Because the tip off is awesome because you are ready to go. You're just sizing up that, that opponent. You're, I was like, I'm going to dominate you right now, you know? And it's just that tense, that anticipation or if you're if you're in music right like everybody is in choir everybody's ready to go or in band you have your instruments ready and if you know if you're in that first stanza like your instrument is poised and ready to go what do you do all of a sudden the the conductor whoop the wand goes up they call it a wand or is that just a harry potter a baton baton no that's back to, to the track thing where they're handing off there's a baton there you go click 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 right or if you're in drama, right? My, my fellow drama people, like, like you're behind the stage and all of a sudden you hear this crowd goes quiet and, the, and you're behind the curtains and all of a sudden that sound of a curtain opening is like, I wish you could just bottle that up. I guess you could record it and just play it back. But, but you get what I'm saying, right? Like there's this anticipation of all this preparation that you've been putting into this. And then all of a sudden it's kind of like this, pregnant pause right before go time this on your mark this time of preparation right this gets set where there's this anticipation and then go when it's all action time right this morning we're actually going to see the same dynamic as jesus begins his public ministry uh, after about 30, about turning around 30 years old, 30 years of preparation. Last week off, we left, uh, last week we left off in Luke chapter two, where, where we saw Jesus as a 12 year old boy blowing people's minds in the temple. And today we're going to pick back up 18 years later, uh, when he's 30 years old, which is the time in that culture, in that religion where priests would kind of say, okay, it's go time. I'm, I'm now a priest. So, so Drew is still a year away from um, becoming an official, you know, there we go. Just a year, right? right so, so there we go. Well, 30 year, year that's the age, age of accountability for, for pastors, I guess. I don't know. So something like that. But 
In Luke chapter, this morning, we're going to look at Luke chapter three and four. Don't worry, we're not going to read it all because there's a lot. But in Luke chapter three, verses one and two, Luke, like we were talking about, he gives a lot of historical details. And he talks about the Roman government officials, because you can go back to history books and say, oh yeah, this is the exact time. Like Luke isn't just making this stuff up because he's citing his sources. This is the Roman uh, government that's going on. And he also talks about who's in, who's the, the high priest of the Jewish religion leadership stuff too, right? And so he kind of starts that off, but then we're going to see this whole on your mark, get set, go. First of all, in Luke chapter three, we see the on your mark call. Starting in verse two, it says, at this time, a message from God came to John, son of Zechariah, who was living in the wilderness. Now, other gospels kind of tell us a little bit about Luke. He's a little bit crazy, right? Like he's dressed in kind of burlap kind of garb. He's eating honey and locusts and he's not your ordinary guy, right? He's not wearing designer suits and like gaining favor just because he's such a smooth operator, right? No, he's kind of an odd duck. He's out in the wilderness. Now, again, where did Jesus come to? A little girl, not a little girl, a young lady, who has no, like, she's nothing special to this podunk little town born in a cave in a feed trough, right? And then it's, it's announced to the shepherds and the shepherds aren't anything special. It's not like they're royalty. They're just out herding sheep for the religious system of the day. And now the gospel comes from an oddball out in the wilderness, Verse three, then John went from place to place on both sides of the Jordan River, preaching that people should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. Verse four, Isaiah had spoken of John when he said, he is a voice shouting in the wilderness. This is a prophecy hundreds of years beforehand leading up to this messenger of the savior. He is a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord's coming, clear the road for him. The valleys will be filled and the mountains and hills made level. The curves will be straightened and the rough places made smooth. And then all the people will see the salvation sent from God. Now, this was a prophecy hundreds of years before about this messenger who would basically prepare the way of the coming king. Now, in that day and time, think Salt Lake City preparing for the Olympics. We weren't here for that, but it's everywhere. Like I remember talking with people who have lived here, who lived here in the nineties leading up to the the Olympics saying it was nuts. Like all of I-15 was ripped up and redone. And we still see the Olympic symbols everywhere. There's all these building projects going everywhere. Why? Because the world was coming to Salt Lake City and they spared no expense at making Salt Lake City beautiful for the coming of the world to their town. And that's what would happen is if the king would come out to the territories, they would be like building projects. We got to make it look good for him. They got to be prepared for him. Spare no expense. Let's make it ready for the coming king. And so this is what's going on. John is, is basically saying, or Isaiah is saying that John would be preaching this message of prepare for the coming king. Verse seven, when the crowds came to John for baptism, he said, you brood of snakes. Wait a minute. (laughs) That's brutal. 
That is brutal. They're coming to you to, to find out what you're talking about. He calls them a brood of snakes. Who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, we're safe or we're descendants of Abraham. That means nothing. For I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. Even now, the axe of God's judgment is poised ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. The crowds asked, well, then what should we do? John replied, if you have two shirts, give one to the poor. If you have food, share it with those who are hungry. Even corrupt tax collectors came to be baptized and asked, teacher, what should we do? He replied, give no more, uh, collect no more taxes than the government requires. What should we do? Asked some soldiers. John replied, don't extort money or make false accusations and be content with your pay. Everyone was expecting the Messiah to come soon, and they were eager to know whether John might be that Messiah. John answered their question by saying, I baptize you with water, but someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater that I am not even worthy to be his slave or untie the straps of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He is ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. Then he will clean up the threshing area, gathering the wheat into, the, into his barn, but burning the chaff with never-ending fire. John used many such warnings as he announced the good news to the people. Do you know how much I didn't want to talk about this this morning? You know how badly I wanted to cherry pick all the fun parts out of this passage and leave the not so fun parts? But it's in there. And if you've been here for long, we don't shy away from hard stuff in the Bible. We dig deeper. Because if it's in there, it's in there for a reason, and we have to look at it. We have to process it, right? And so this morning, we're going to look at that. There is a simplicity and a singularity to the message of John. There is a simplicity and a singularity to John's message. And here's, the, here, here's what it is. There's bad news. And there's good news. The bad news is that we are born into a dead, old, destructive system that is separate from God. From the beginning of time, Adam sinned. And ever since then, we all sin. It's just the reality of the world. If you question the reality of original sin, have you ever had a baby? Right? Like babies are sweet and cute and adorable, but they're also holy terrors. <laughs> like nobody ever teaches a child how to grab the toy from everybody else. Nobody ever teaches a child how, at the slightest little provocation, like volcanic eruptions of temper and anger and, and entitlement. Nobody teaches a child how to be sinful. They're just really good at it on their own. I know that might sound weird, but I mean, let's just step off of our defensiveness just a little bit. And, and really, from an early age, we're just selfish little poopy beings, right? And, and we're demanding, and, 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 and yeah, we might have these friendships, and we might grow up, and we learn how to operate within the system, but still, really, at the core of who we are, it's so easy to be selfish and self-centered and demanding and, and broken. It's just a part of living in a broken, fallen world. Now, 
Here's the problem is that God is a holy, perfect God, and he created things in to be, to be per- perfect. And part of that perfection is to have a will. He didn't create these, these robots who couldn't disobey him because that wouldn't be loving. The most loving thing to do is to give a choice. And guess what would we do with that choice? We, we kind of screwed it up. And because we messed up, I know it'd be great just to say, well, it's okay. It's all right. No, there's judgment. If there's not judgment, then, then what is it worth, right? I'm going to go do my own thing, and then I get bailed out at the last second anyhow. Like, even though people are like, well, how can a loving God send anybody to hell? You're right. He doesn't send anybody to hell. I think that he allows us to choose to go there ourselves, to be separated from God. And people say, well, why wouldn't God just, just let us do our thing and then just say, just kidding, come on in here. Because if we don't want God during our time on earth, would it be really loving to force himself on us for eternity? I, I don't think so. I think he says, if you don't want me during your sh- few years on earth, why would you want to be with me for eternity? And it's just logic, guys. And I hate to break that to people, but I'm like, that wouldn't be a very loving thing. That'd be like if, 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 if Nicole and I hated each other's guts and, and during our time on earth, but yet to think that, well, then we'd be together for eternity. Well, if I don't like her on earth, why would I want to be with her in eternity? Right? Or make her be with me for eternity. If she hates my guts and I'm abusive and I'm just a jerk, would, would I, you know, or if she, you, you get what I'm saying, Right? Yeah. Stop. No, we're doing really good. We're doing really good. I promise. Just kidding. Um, so here's the other line of thinking. Well, what gives God the right to judge? What, what gives God the right to judge? How can God judge? Let's flip the script. What gives me the right to judge? You know how much I judge? I try really hard not to judge, but if you wrong me, I judge you. And I expect my righteous decrees to be upheld. I'm not the only one in here. If I would cut you off on the road, I guarantee I'd probably get the middle finger salute from you. If I would, if I would hurt your child, you would want judgment. If I would wrong you in a deep, intimate, personal way, you would expect judgment based on your sense of what righteousness is, right? You see, we have no problem with our own judgment, but then we question God's right to judge, the creator of all things. And I think that's what makes Christianity, the the, the Christian faith unique, is that we surrender to God's judgment. I know it stinks. I know it's not fun. It's not easy. We sound like jerks. But the reality is, is we are so judgy in our uber accepting whatever world. It's judgy, guys. It is so incredibly judgy. But that's the sovereignty of self instead of the sovereignty of God, right? So that's the bad news. We have to accept that bad news that, that I am broken, I, I, am, I am hurting, I am hurtful, right? And, and, and that's the bad news. But guess what? The other part is that there is good news. The good news is that 
we can receive forgiveness and freedom and love and life and salvation because of who Jesus is and what he did. We, the, so the good news is because, even though through all that brokenness, we can still receive salvation and life. This is the central message of the work in person and message of Jesus is this, is this salvation. It's, it's, there's something wrong, but there is good news on the tail end of that. And so that's the centrality of what John is saying is this word called repentance. Repentance is basically, it's a turning. It's, I am going away from God towards the world system. I'm getting enmeshed in it. I'm getting stuck in it. I'm buying into it. I'm perpetuating it. I'm, I'm, I'm just deep into it this way. But then repentance is all of a sudden say, wait a minute, I'm in the middle of this bad news. And then there's good news. And repentance is a 180 degree turn, turning away from the sin and turning towards God, turning away from my brokenness and towards his healing and his love. That is repentance. That is the core of what John is saying. I've heard, I've heard it before that John, just like every other preacher, has one good message. And that is the message of repentance. Everything else is fluff. If we're not teaching repentance, and I know that's such a, like a, oh, kind of word, right? Like, we don't want to hear that because what are you going to get signs and bullhorns and something? No, 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 no. No, not talking about that at all. But we are talking about we need to turn away from this and towards God. Because if we're trying to do this, it just doesn't work. There's a singularity of focus of turning from sin and death to Jesus and life. Now, this is central to everything. Because, and, and I know this might sound odd or, or overly simplistic. But if... We aren't turning from this to that. Nothing else will follow. I want God while I'm still marching this way. I want the blessings. I want the freedom. I want the life. I want all this kind of stuff while I'm still heading to this brokenness. And we wonder why it doesn't work. If, if our faith seems dry and boring and irrelevant and uninteresting and unengaging. Let's do some reverse engineering. Have we repented? Have we recognized the path that we are or were on? And are we turning away from that towards that? Because when we turn away from that for this, then everything else just kind of falls into place. It doesn't mean everything is easy, but now all of a sudden, if I have erased, just say, I'm not heading towards that anymore, I'm heading to this. Now, all of a sudden, I get really excited about the good news. I buy into it. I'm excited, and I can't shut up about it, right? Instead of trying to, to excuse it and walk towards it and, and kind of, I know this is a stinky gross blanket, but it's my blanket, right? No, get rid of that stuff. Whatever that might be for you, get rid of that and run towards the light and life of Jesus. That is the heart of the gospel. There's bad news. There's good news. I need to repent and turn. I need to go away from this. I need to grieve that. I need to surrender that. And I need to run towards that. 
without the bad news and recognizing just how bad the bad news is, the good news is just so-so news. Does that make sense? If we don't see how, how, what we're being saved from, we're not going to see how good that salvation actually is. When we realize how good the good news is, it draws us in and it makes us want to pursue him more and more and more. Then in verse 21 through 23, um, it says, one day when the crowds were being baptized, um, Jesus himself was baptized. As he was praying, the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit in bodily form descended on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, you are my dearly loved son and you bring me great joy. Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his public ministry. Why would Jesus, the son of God, God incarnate, God with flesh on, need to be baptized? There's a couple things here. One is that Jesus came to fulfill, complete, and replace the old covenant, the old system, the old law. And so Baptism was kind of this cleansing ritual to where you would go through that to be made right with God. And Jesus himself says, I'm going to go through that just to show how clean I am. And, and it's this, this thing, this whole ritual, the, the sacrament of being baptized is replaced by Jesus. That doesn't mean that we don't get baptized anymore, but basically it becomes the outward demonstration of an inward transformation of repentance, Right. And so Jesus is kind of showing, hey, I am fulfilling what you guys are trying to do. And now salvation is found in me and me only. Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice that replaced, that would make all the rituals and temples and everything else irrelevant and empty. He was how we would be made right with God. And that is good news because how do we know if we've done enough, right? How do we know if we have been good enough? Jesus replaces that. And so it's a demonstration that in him, your salvation is found in him. And by the way, not to turn it out, but this is a really Trinitarian passage, right? And I know this is just a, a really easy thing for us to understand, right? The whole idea of a triune God, simple, right? No, it's hard. I still don't understand it been in some really fun discussions lately. It's just been making me really think about it and everything like that. But here we see God, the spirit of God descending on the son and the father is cheering it all on, right? Fun little passage here. And what's, what's crazy is, is, is you see all three parts in this one scene. And it brings us into mind Genesis 1, where the Spirit of God is hovering over all of creation, and then God the Father creates. And then in John 1, 1, we see that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so Jesus was there too. And so God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are all a part of this. And we see this opening scene of the Bible, and now all of a sudden in the baptism of Jesus, we see all three together again in one scene. I'm going to leave it there because I can totally nerd out and, and, but this is a seismic moment in the history of God's creation. It's a mystery that I think God calls us to delight in. Um, and then Luke gives us this long and detailed genealogy. I'm going to go through and read it all and perfectly pronounce every name and give a backstory of everything. No, I'm not going to, because I don't know. Why does Luke give us that genealogy? Again, it's kind of showing his sources, it gives an irrefutable proof of, oh, 
Jesus was born of Joseph, who was born of this guy, who was born of this guy. And it goes through generation after generation. And you see the lineage of Jesus all the way back to Adam, who is created by God. And the point of that is to say, look, the salvation, the, the Savior, the Messiah was going to come from the nation of Israel, from a priestly tribe, from all these things. And it's kind of like the, Jesus is the one who fulfills all of these criteria. On your mark. A lot of preparation going into this, right? It's, it's fun. I was talking about Carter and Colson um, racing and, and it wasn't just the warm up in the field that was their preparation. It was the track practice, the weightlifting, the extra hill running behind the school, the parachute running, the relentless training and training and training and training. That was all the preparation. But then all of a sudden in Luke four, we see this quick get set call. Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit out into the wilderness where his identity would be tested by Satan. Things are tense. And so basically Jesus is led out into the wilderness by Satan and he's tempted to say, hey, serve me and I'll give you this. Hey, you can do this. And hey, you try this. And to every single one, Jesus quotes scripture and says, nope, you are not in charge. You are not in control. You have no power. This is who I am and this is what I'm here to do. Can read that in the first part of chapter chapter four, but look at the interesting parallel here. The first Adam was in the garden. Jesus, who's sometimes called as the second Adam, because sin came in through one person, salvation came in through one person. Right? Adam was in the perfect garden. Jesus was in the wild wilderness. Uh, Adam was tempted to exalt himself to godhood and failed. He fell for it. And Jesus, who ironically is a part of the Godhood, was tempted and he passed. He says, I'm not going to step out of my lane. I'm going to stay in the lane of why I am here and who I am. And he passes. Adam brings sin into the world. Jesus brings salvation into the world. This is the get set moment where Jesus demonstrates he knows exactly who he is and why he's here. And he was not going to flinch or false start. It's always interesting watching the beginning of a race because there's always, you know, sprinters that just, they, they can't handle it and boom, they just got to go on their own, right? They just can't wait. And Jesus is demonstrating he knows who he is and why he's here. And then finally we get to the go, the firing of the gun, verse, uh, chapter four, verse 14. Then Jesus returned to Galilee, filled with the Holy Spirit's power. Reports about him spread quickly through the whole region. He taught regularly in the synagogue and was praised by everyone. Now, the synagogue is basically church, right? Like Jesus regularly went to church and he studied the scripture. And, uh, and there was always a scripture reading and they would talk about parts of the scripture. And then they would, you know, they would talk about it. And that's where it all goes crazy. Verse 17, the scroll of Isaiah, the prophet was handed to Jesus. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has set, he has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see and that the oppressed will be set free and that the time of the Lord's favor, favor has come. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant and sat down. 
Now, what's interesting is a lot of times we think he sat down like he was done, but actually in their system, like you would actually stand to read scripture. And then the teacher, when it was kind of like, when, when everybody would like quiet is when the teacher sat down because that's when the teaching would begin. And so everybody's all ears is kind of like, oh, he just read this. What's he going to say? Then he began to speak to them. The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. Everyone spoke well of him and was amazed by the gracious words that had come from his lips. Everyone was amazed. But then when he started talking about what that salvation was, who it was for, how it would come, all of a sudden they lost it. If you keep reading in this passage, uh, they, they could not stand the thought of salvation coming to those dirty Gentiles. They weren't religious enough. They weren't pure enough. They weren't the right nationality, the right ethnicity. They weren't the right class. They weren't the right this. They, weren't, they haven't done anything to earn this. And you're saying you're going to bring salvation to them? We can't stand this. And so what they do, they take him out to the edge of town and try to throw him off a cliff. The opening scene of Jesus's ministry in the gospel of Luke, and he almost gets killed. And I love it because he said, because he was filled with the power of God, he just walked right through him, kept on going. That's insane. I remember, I remember uh, one time when I was, when I was younger, I was, I was uh, at this church and I was, I don't like to dress up too terribly much. I was wearing jeans and, you know, whatever kind of a shirt and things like that. And I, I uh, gave the message that morning and, and this older guy came up to me and, and he goes, boy, that was a really good message. I really appreciate what you were saying. And, and this was good. And this was good. And he goes, but you know, Jason, I like it a lot better when you wear dress pants. And I said, I know. And that's why I like to wear jeans. <laughs> Like every good thing that I just said, it sounded great. But what really bothers me, though, is that you're not dressed up enough. And, that's, and that was the big hang up. And it's the same thing here. It's kind of like, Jesus, we really like the idea of the Savior, but nah, he, he needs to be wearing dress pants. He really, it doesn't gel with what my box that I put God into. How often do we do that? We like the idea of Jesus, the idea of, of, of salvation, the idea of heaven. We like the idea of faith. We like the idea of scripture. But when we dig into the reality of it, it's kind of like, eh, I don't know. Too often we want the clever sounding solutions and not to be led to Jesus and him alone and join in with what he's doing. In the Christ-centered exposition commentary, it says, the gospel we preach cannot be an escapist, pie-in-the-sky gospel. It must be a gospel acquainted with pain, roughened by grit, and smelling like marginalized people. The gospel must enter the world as it is and proclaim to broken people a healing savior. So our challenge is not to be Jesus. Our challenge is to point to the one who does set free, the one who enters temptation to purchase our victory, the one who has come into our broken world with a promise of rescue and deliverance. Jesus challenged their neat and tidy God-in-a-box religion where they could pick and choose what they wanted. Jesus was God with flesh on in the dirt, 
He was very comfortable on the margins with the outcasts in the messy parts of our lives. And that really angered the people because really when it came down to it, they didn't need Jesus. They thought they could handle it on their own. And that is the problem is that too often we think, no, 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 no. I think I can still get good enough here instead of turning away from that into God. And so then as Jesus answers that go call, as he starts his, his three-year race, he goes, he's in the church. Now it's funny because in, in chapter four, it talks about how Jesus casting out a demon out of somebody. And you think he's probably out on the, on the scary parts of town, right? Where the demon possessed people. He was in church and there was a demon possessed person in that church. And he casts out that demon of the church person. It's kind of crazy, isn't it? But I think it's very intentional to show, look, it's not just them or those people or that type. No, it's, it's us. How are we being led astray? How are we holding on to the things that just bring us darkness and death and hurt and pain? How have we just held on to those things? And how is Jesus trying to cast those off? And then, and then he goes on and he's healing all these people and everybody's coming and they're being healed and everything like that. Guys, the kingdom of God is, is, is wholeness. It's peace. It's healing. It's forgiveness. It's love. We need to be living that out in our lives. And so people start harassing him and they're like, don't leave, don't leave. And so he escapes. And then he says, you know what? I got to go spread the message elsewhere as well. And that brings chapter four to its conclusion. Now, I know this is a lot, and a lot of it's kind of rough. If you're new here, don't worry. Not every week is a hellfire brimstone. Repent, turn, or burn. I don't want to dwell on sin. I don't want to dwell on brokenness. I don't want to dwell on what's wrong. But the other side of it, though, is I also don't want to ignore it. And when we're going through a book of the Bible and it talks about this stuff, we're going to talk about it. We're, we're going to see what God has to say about it. And here's the thing. Sometimes we have to listen to the bad news so that we realize just how good the good news is. There's a simplicity to the on your mark call, right? This preparation and, and, and we have to prepare our hearts. We have, to, we have to admit that, hey, you know what? I have been missing the mark. I need to get on the mark. I need to start... I, I might not understand God completely. I might not understand what this is all about, but you know what? I'm going to start preparing my heart for who God is, and I want to surrender myself to him. I want to, to practice repentance. I want to turn away from what's wrong and towards the solution of what's right. I want to reorient my life instead of going to what the world tells me to, to what God tells me to. I want to seek that forgiveness, that life, that love, that peace, that wholeness, that sense of purpose and identity and mission. I want to seek after that. And then when there's this get set call, I want to be ready to be tested. I want to be ready to say, am I really all in? And then when it's the go call, I want to be ready for action. I want to say, God, whatever you want, I'm there. You've saved me. You've forgiven me. You've taken me from being a dead person to a living person. Now I want to join in with what you're doing and what you want for us. Are we anticipating that? Are we acting on that? That's our prayer. That's who we want to be. That's what we want to do. We want to be able to, 
to, to share the good news. And if you look at, if you look at uh, the discussion questions that we go over during, um, I really encourage you to go through those on your own, but we also kind of go through those in preparation for, for connect groups and encourage you to plug in with a connect group. But one of them is, is how can I, how can I basically preach the good news without being a self-righteous jerk? (laughs) And I know that's a little bit jarring, but I think we need to be jarring because the, the, the impression is if you talk about sin and repentance, well, then you're just a jerk. No, the doctor who has a patient that comes in and says, you're sick. Is that doctor a jerk? No, it would be a jerk if, well, you're sick, get out of my hospital. That would be a jerk. But a loving doctor would say, you are mortally wounded, but guess what? We can do something about that. Let's go. That's who we want to be. That is the most loving thing to do. So my invitation, my challenge, my encouragement this morning is if you have never turn from and turn to, I'd invite you to ask yourself, why not? What are we gaining and what are we losing? What are we gaining by holding on to something that is taking us down this path? And what are we losing by not? What do we have to gain by, by repenting and, and agreeing with what God is saying? And what would we lose by letting that go? That's my challenge. If you've never, if you've never processed that, I would encourage you to do that. Spend some time just talking with God about what that means in your life specifically. And if you have, if you've said, yeah, I'm a Christian. I followed Jesus. I love him. I surrender to him. Then is that the gravitational force in our life? Every day, do we, I mean, I'm not saying every day grieve our sin. Like, oh, I'm sad. No, because now I'm saved. I am forgiven. That is my new identity. But do I, do I still find myself creeping back in to want to just kind of like, well, <laughs> kind of miss that. And I kind of want to do that. And I kind of fall back into this, but I love, I love you, God. But, you know, have we really given ourselves to say, no, that is sick and dead and done. And I want nothing to do with that anymore. And I want you, Jesus. Ask ourselves that question, talk with God and just confess that. Even, I love how, how um, uh, David in the Psalm says, search me and know me, O God. If there's any offensive way in me, point it out. That should be our prayer every day. Am, am I wholeheartedly pursuing you? And am I living that message out every day? So this morning, we're going to kind of put an exclamation point on this message with participating in communion. I love communion because Jesus kind of, it's, it's a very tangible illustration of saying the old system is sacrifice, shedding of blood. Guess what? I'm the fulfillment. I'm the completion. I'm the replacement of that. Instead of going through this religious ritual, now you just turn to me. And so Jesus gives his life. He, 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 with his disciples, he said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. Instead of clinging to your old ways, your old religious practices, your old rituals, to those old crutches, those old scaffoldings, just turn to me. So that's what communion is all about. A worship team comes up. We're going we're gonna to have uh, two songs. And I'd invite you that if, if you 
want to just declare that, if you want to express that, if you want to experience that, like we always say, you don't have to, we don't even have membership with this church. So it's not like you have to have a membership or anything like that. Even if you've never, if this is your first time, this is for you. And we invite you to come and to, as, as the music plays, just to, to take a piece of the bread, break it off, dip it in one of the cups, and then just say, thank you, Jesus, for who you are and what you did. Or whatever is on your heart. But just celebrate that. Enact that. Guys, that gift is for you. Whether you've been walking with the Lord for years or this is the first moment of that relationship. I just invite you to come and spend that time celebrating and thank, thanking Jesus for that gift of life that he gives us. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for these, <laughs> these truths in your scripture. God, you show us um, how people came to you and, and maybe tried to hold on and cling to the old ways and the old systems. But God, they're, they're nothing compared to you. And so God, this morning, we just want to have a singularity of focus. That God, we recognize that we need to turn away and turn towards. God, help us to, if any of us are struggling this morning and we're like, yeah, but I don't know. God, just, just break into all things. God, help us to see your love for what it is. God, you don't trap us into a dead system. We're not surrendering to an institution or a leader or a system or anything, God. It is just purely a relationship with our maker. So, God, we thank you for that. God, I pray that you would just move in our hearts. You would speak to us. God, you are not a harsh, hateful, unjust God, but rather, God, you are a loving God. You want nothing more to have that relationship restored with each one of us. So, God, I pray as we uh, participate in the act of communion, speak into our hearts and minds, God, we can be so thankful for who you are and what you're doing. Thank you.